Welcome, Pastor Jason Peaks. Jason is, Jason is from New Song Church in the DMV, Washington, D.C. area. And we are so stoked you're here with us, man. Make yourself at home. I don't know about you guys, but I just super love your pastors. Uh, they are just, whew. I mean, we were kind of like, man, we've known each other for like five years. And then we're like, three. Like what? It feels, it does feel so much longer. Um, just honored, so honored to be with Lyle and Allison and with you all today here at Legacy. Uh, I was here the very first Sunday Legacy met in this building. And um, to see what God's done is remarkable and so wonderful and so exciting. And um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm from uh, Virginia Beach area. I think there's some, some Virginia Beach people here. Well, 757, holler at your boy, you know. <laughs> and um, and uh, my wife and I, we, we, transitioned to, uh, we transitioned to outside of DC about 10 months ago to take a, a job at a church. And uh, we love our pastor, Pastor Alvin Chun and his wife, Christine, are the best. They've really just uh, honored us and brought us in. And he's so kind to let me leave on a Sunday, you know? Uh, but he knew that it was for family. And so that, that always makes it a lot easier. Um, lastly, before we get to the word, I really feel like there's a spirit of prophecy in the room. And we all know that the spirit of prophecy is a testimony of Jesus. So we just want to believe that Jesus is releasing himself in a fashionable way today, in a unique and powerful way today. So we just say yes to that impartation today. I actually feel like uh, the message will speak more to what the prophetic anointing is for this community. And I saw this picture for the church um, where I saw legacy as like this building. I saw like this building and it was like sitting on top of a pyramid. And I feel like in the, in the last season, I said this in the first service, so Pastor Lyle's already heard it. Um, but in, in, the, in the past season of this church, I, I feel like people looked at this church and wondered what it would become. Like, I felt like they're like, will it go this way? Will it go that way? Because the church was on a pyramid. It was like balancing on a pyramid. And everyone's like, I don't know about that. Like, they might be too much this or too much that. And there was all these, I felt like there was just kind of this, this balancing act that people have felt when they look at legacy and understand legacy. And I felt like the Lord said, I'm coming. And I saw his hand come out of heaven. And he began to depress the church into the pyramid. And as he depressed it into the pyramid, he said, I'm making this thing so that the foundation is so large in this place that it will not be able to be moved. And I feel like even the fact that it's a pyramid and there's this beautiful picture of kind of this triangular idea that the, the Spirit of the Lord was just saying to me, this is gonna be a place that will always honor the Father's heart, the Holy Spirit, and the mission of Jesus. And so we just like honor Legacy Church and we just say yes, God, to the founding of this church in the city of Nashville, that no one will have any more questions about this place because God is bringing an unshakability to what is occurring here. So we bless Legacy. And maybe you feel like you have been teetering back and forth. I even feel like the Lord says, if you've been teetering back and forth, stay put and stay down in to this place because I'm gonna make it so strong that nothing can move it. Pyramids are like one of the most stable things on the entire planet. And that's what God is doing in this house. That's so cool, guys. Love it. All right, well, we'll see what happens, okay? 
So I'm going to kind of transition into talking about what I think the Lord wants us to talk about today. But I just have to start by being super vulnerable. Is that okay? Because uh, we're in this series in my church right now uh, called Into the Light. It's all about being truthful and honest. And I was like, yeah, actually, I think I'm supposed to tell you guys this. But basically, I've had like mega anxiety about preaching this sermon all week long. I'm like, I don't want to preach it. Like, I literally like felt like nothing was working in my notes. I'm like, it's going to suck. It's going to be so bad. Just like Jesus, like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I want my friend to be like super happy with me, you know, that he brought me into his church. And like, you know, I was just feeling like all of these tensions. Anybody ever feel like that? You know, welcome to the club. And so I feel like today, even as we go into this, I want you to just kind of embrace that awkward feeling, if that's okay. Like, I kind of want to embrace the fact that I feel super uncomfortable because I don't really know how God wants me to say what what he wants me to say, but I'm going to do my best, okay? Is that all right? So... (laughs) So I think that the hardest thing about this message is because it's so personal, you know, it's so personal. It's like this thing that, that I've known and I've experienced over my whole life. I remember that when I first uh, got ordained uh, at my dad's church and, and they laid hands on me and they were like, you know, you're going to be a minister of the gospel and everything. I'm sitting there and a mentor came up to me. And as the mentor came up to me, he said, Jason, he said, as you were being uh, prayed for and, and someone's people were laying hands on you, I began to see a monastic anointing coming on your life. And I was like a monastic anointing. I'm like wearing like robes and like shaving the middle of my head kind of thing. And I'm like, I, I feel like Friar Tuck a little bit. Like, you know, I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this. And, and then immediately when he was saying that, it triggered something in my spirit. And what it triggered in my spirit is that I remember that the word monastic comes from the Greek word monos, which means one and only. And the truth is, is that when you read the scriptures, what we know more than anything else is that God is looking for us to be one and only for him. You know, it says that in 1 John that the reason why we even love is because he loved first. And so we start realizing that all of our love is supposed to be only love for him. Like only for him. Because otherwise I get trapped in what Henri Nouwen calls his second love. Second love is the kind of love that I always want to try to get from people, parents, friends, family, groups of people, you know, community members, whatever you, whoever you're trying to get love from is second love. And guess what? It's not enough. Like second love will never be enough. It doesn't matter how much second love you get, no matter how many people you impress, how many people you feel connected to because you're so similar, no matter how many people you're like, yeah, we're just like each other and we believe the same things, it's awesome, it's not enough. And we get to this point in our heart where we're like, we're always vying for everyone's attention. We're always vying for people to be like, look at me, look at me, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm, I'm connected to you. And in our hearts, we lack that monastic, crazy love of Jesus. Like we, we miss this monastic, like I'm one and only for you. I mean, monks are so extreme that they take a vow of celibacy to say, I'm only for you, no one else. And out of that place comes something that's unlike anything we've seen in the earth. See, this is the problem with second love. If you live by second love, you will always end up in a place where you will break apart family. 
Because what happens is, is the way God made us and designed us was never to be just about each other. What happens is, is we start tiptoeing around ideologies and politics and, and theology and perspective and opinion and experience, right? And you start associating yourself with people who are just like you. Like whoever's like me is like good. And if you're not like me, bad. You know, it's like Facebook unlike button, you know? Like that's kind of what happens in our world. I mean, it goes so far that on our Instagram, we're waiting for certain people to heart it. Second love. Second love. That we're in a position, particularly in a city like this, where everybody is talking about everyone else in either a thumbs up or thumbs down way. Because we're addicted to second love. Like we are addicted to the fact that people can give us more than anyone else. And we end up in a position where we're not happy, we're not fulfilled, and we're empty of love. So the moment that Jesus says, hey, go love that person down the street, you're like, they're not like me, I'm not doing it. The moment that Jesus asks us to give our love away, we can't because we've already given it to everyone else. And I think that it's a huge challenge to the world we live in. I mean, I've never seen a season where so many people are so antagonistic against so many other people. I'm like, give it a break. Like, why does it always have to be war? Why does there always have to be lines drawn in the sand? We've fallen in love with second love and forgot our only love. I feel like in the scriptures, we're given a beautiful example of someone who busts in on the scene and he says, I have, I have only love. Hey, watch me have only love. And I think that he's a little quirky and he's a little different, so maybe I just vibe with him better because of that. But the truth is, is that I feel like the moment that John the Baptist comes on the scene, that everybody's all of a sudden upset because he's for only love. He's not for second love. He's only for one love. He's only for knowing and prepping and preparing that everything that he does and lives and thinks and, and processes is only about him. Like, let me th- let's, let's think through the description of John the Baptist. We can't read through all the, the passages, but I just want you to, to know that if you, go to the, if you go to Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, and John 1, you can read all of this. I'm gonna synopsis it for you to make it easier and so we can get to our text quicker. That the truth is, is John the Baptist comes on the scene and everyone recognizes him for a few things. They recognize him things like, oh, he's a preacher. Preachy boy. For whatever reason, preaching is not cool anymore. And it's because we forgot that preaching just means sharing good news. See, the truth is, is good news could just be that you're talking to someone else who's in front of you today. I mean, good news can literally be so simple, but we have to think in our minds like, oh, some guy getting on a soapbox with a bullhorn. That's not preaching. It's pontificating. And I think that for us, when we're in this moment, we start to realize like, man, like I never herald Jesus in my life. Because John the Baptist always heralds Jesus. Like every moment he's like, he's coming, you know, like he's coming, like 
get ready, like repent, like turn around from every other love and know that his love is here. He's like trying to apprehend our attention and say, hey, listen, I just want you to know that he is coming. Like, I don't care what else you have. He's coming. He's better than that. And so as you read through, you find out that not only is he a preacher, but he's a prophet. They're all like, whoa, this bro is like Elijah level prophet. Now, Elijah level prophet doesn't mean a whole lot to us because we don't read the Old Testament. Listen, if the Old Testament was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Just saying. If Jesus understood who the Father was through the scriptures, hello, growing up, then it's enough for us. We just failed to read it. Not trying to be crunchy, I'm sorry. But the truth is, is that you know that he's a prophetic person, not only because he loves to quote things from the prophets. He, he quotes from Malachi. He quotes from Isaiah. He loves to quote these passages. Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. You know, and so they're all like, their ears are perked because every person pretty much has heard the whole Old Testament preached their whole lives. So they know, they remember, oh, this is like a prophecy about someone who's going to come, who's going to change everything, called the Messiah. And here we have this crazy man out in the wilderness screaming and yelling it. Because he understands that part of being a prophet is being a person who's willing to cry when no one else cries. That the truth is, is that the prophet is willing to be the one crying in the wilderness when there is no crowd. Like, you can't just cry in a wilderness and think that you're going to attract people. But I believe that God is asking you today, like, would you be someone who cries in the wilderness? That would, I genuinely believe he cried so loud that people in the city had to come out into the wilderness to hear what he was saying. Potentially miles away. I don't think that we have received this level of the prophetic yet in the church. Where we're willing to cry out in the wilderness that the king is coming, get ready, and get prepared. Because the one love is coming that we've all been waiting for because we're so divided. I mean, in that day, they were divided too. I mean, you literally have Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, all different sects of Judaism. So everybody picked and chose what they liked best. You know, if you're a Pharisee, you're like, I'm all about oral tradition. I'm all about like regulations. I'm all about like accomplishment, right? Discipline. <laughs> it's like Pastor Rick said, Pastor Maggie would have been like good at, you know, at that. He said that this morning. I didn't say that. <laughs> he said, she'd be good at that. She's like disciplined and always does like the right thing. And then the Sadducees are over there and they're basically like, you know what? We're political. We're rich, we're wealthy, and we have all the voice in the political arena. And we'll do whatever it takes. We'll even become Hellenized to be able to reach political gain. Like we will literally become like Greeks and Romans so that we can have more of a voice in society. And somebody picked to be in a Sadducee context. Then you got the really weird ones, the Essenes. They're so navel-gazing that all they do is wash themselves every single day because they know they're so impure. And they live in such a way that everything is about self. Everything is about me and what I need to fix and deal with. 
They're a little bit more mystical, a little bit more spiritual in some ways, a little more communal, and a little bit more about the poor. Sound familiar? And in that same regard, all of these people who pick this, they pick their version of church, basically, which is what we do all the time. And in doing so, they end up breaking up family. Because if you go back in the history, they're all related. They're all brothers and cousins and uncles and aunts. And Israel is just a giant family. And we think we're so much better that we've evolved from the first century. No, actually, we're doing the same thing over and over again because we're appealing to second love and not appealing to first love. See, the funny thing is, is when he comes, he basically has to challenge all of those people to readjust themselves. So who God's calling us to be as a people, to be like John the Baptist, is to call people to the place where it says, hey, it doesn't matter because he's coming. Oh, oh, all the high places, all of you people who think you got it and you figured it out, let's just bring ourselves down. And all you low people who feel like you never have it together and you're always a hot mess, let's just lift you up so that Jesus can come. Because that's the only place he comes is in the middle. On the level place is where Jesus arrives. But John the Baptist has to come and tell everybody, it's, you don't have to be high or low, you just got to be in the middle. Like you don't have to be extraordinary and you don't have to suck all the time. You just got to be okay. And you have to be waiting and prepared and ready and telling everybody he's coming with the love that you're all looking for. Like he's coming to be like, I'm going to show you all the love you've ever looked for and see how weak and bland second level love is. Listen, I just, I want to just touch one more thing. Because there's something really special and really unique about this quirky preaching, profity, preparing, always putting to practice everything that he says. Because hello, we don't do that. We're really good at talking. Hello. We're really good at posting. Hello. But we're really bad at backing it up. So the moment that they see this man walking around with a big fur coat on, little camel vibes, and a leather belt wrapped around him, they're like, hey, this guy actually practices this life of repentance. He actually practices this life of removing everything that's not important so that he can focus on what is. They see him and they're immediately triggered because it says in the scriptures in Zechariah that they had to chide the prophets for wearing the furry cloak like Elijah because they weren't living up to who Elijah actually was. Like they were faking how profity they were by wearing furry clothes. And so in this moment, they see him and they're like, whoa, this guy's like Elijah. Now, Elijah is the prophet of all prophets in the scriptures. He, he started prophetic schools. He passed a mantle down. I mean, he is like the man when it comes to the prophets. And so when they see John the Baptist, all of a sudden they're like, man, this guy reminds us so much of, of this guy who was pivotal as a prophet to the north and the south kingdom of Israel, that his whole cry was, could you just be unified? 
Because that's really the heart of someone who's preparing the way of Jesus is saying, if you would just get on the same page that we all just need one love and forget second love, then he'll come. Like if I can just focus on removing all my second love and focus on my one love, then boom, Jesus is going to show up. And that means that I'm going to have to prefer unity over my opinion. And I'm going to have to move away from my opinion about things to reattain the love I have for him. Because your opinion keeps you further from him than anything else. Because the reality is, is what you think about him is most of the time not who he really is. We're in this position by Jesus to recognize that we are called to manifest the spirit of Elijah in the earth. In Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, there's a prophetic word that comes to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, when he goes into the holy place, which is a very, very spiritually charged place, to burn incense and prayers before the Lord. And an angel comes in and begins to give him a word and says, hey, by the way, when your son comes, he will come with the spirit and power of Elijah. The problem with the current church is that we're more obsessed with the power of Elijah to resurrect and heal people than we are the spirit of Elijah, which is always to unify and prepare the way of the Lord. Because it says in the scriptures that when he comes with the spirit of Elijah, he will come to turn hearts. That the calling for us today is that we would not be people who are trying to move people closer to what we think is right, but that we would be more focused on turning everyone else to him. That the whole calling that Jesus has for us as people who are going to herald that he's always showing up is that we would be people who would say, hey, don't you realize that the only thing that needs to happen is for you to realize Jesus is coming. Like forget everything else, forget everyone else, yell out in the wilderness until he comes. And when he comes, everyone will get it. And they do, the ones who've listened, the ones who've already turned. It says that John the Baptist called many to repentance and confession of their sin. You know, confession of sin sometimes we think is acting immorally, but I think that we would be better to understand sin as going in our own way. That really sin is not really necessarily you being more or less moral than someone else. Your sin is you doing it in your way. So John the Baptist comes and says, stop doing it your way and start doing it in a way that brings so much unity that Jesus manifests. Because when, he, when John the Baptist is calling everybody down to the Jordan River and they're getting stoked because they're thinking about what the Jordan River means and symbolizes this place of transformation and evolution is about to happen. They're like, what's going to happen? John is preaching here and then boom, he says, behold. That's not my cousin. It's the lamb of the world. That's not just another bro. He's the one that we've all been looking for and waiting for. And in that moment, didn't matter if you followed the Sadducees, the Pharisees, or the Essene way of living, you started remembering and recollecting what the scripture said that said, when the spirit of Elijah comes, he will come to turn things back to him. Not just generationally, but relationally. 
Sometimes it's easy for us to think, oh, fathers to sons and sons to fathers. But what would happen if we started thinking just relationships in general? That when you really live as a John the Baptist, a prophetic herald or a prophetic preacher of good news in the earth, that everybody comes into where God has us. It's not just the ones who are second lovers. It's not just the ones that we like or are similar to us. That if you really want to prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight, it means that you're going to have to open it up to all the people that you don't want to open it up to. Listen, Pharisees and Sadducees were not friendly. But John the Baptist, I know we like to think of him as so wild and so crazy and so strange, but I think that his peculiarity created this space to say it is safe to be different. And not different from each other, but different from everything that's not him. Because his heart John the Baptist's heart, more than anything, you hear this, if you read especially, I love in Mark, where he's like, and when he comes, I am not even worthy to untie his shoes. Because the magnitude of his love, the magnitude of who Jesus is, the magnitude of his first love for us will be so overwhelming, we will constantly feel overwhelmed and unworthy. And in that moment, we get to say, let him increase and me decrease so that he might be seen and I'll just lay down and be a pathway. What would happen if you and I laid our lives down like John the Baptist who died for Jesus, laid his life down to be a bridge so that everyone would be able to see Jesus? Like you could be the one who lays down your second love, whoever she is or whoever he is or whoever that group of people are, you lay down your second love and you say, just walk on me. I'll be a bridge so that you can just get to him because nothing else is good enough. Nothing else will even come close to the mighty majesty and love of Jesus that you'll just be so apprehended by his love that everything pales in comparison. Just look at him and be done. Behold, behold the one who gave everything so that you could have his one love. He gave everything so that hearts would be turned. He gave everything so that you might see the futility of second love. That you never be anxious, you never be nervous, you never be concerned about what people feel and think about you anymore because you know the magnificent love of Jesus. John the Baptist is our hero. I mean, he literally is called the friend of the bridegroom. He's the best man. I don't know about you, but I wanna be Jesus's best man. I want to do everything I can to prepare the way so that he can marry himself to everyone who needs it. I recently was listening to these amazing women who have given their lives to Jesus in like a very monastic way. They're called the Evangelical Sisters of Mary and they live out in the wilderness. 
in like Nevada or Arizona or somewhere crazy like that. And when they're there, a lot of people go to them because they hear how close they are to the love of Jesus and the heart of God. They're like, bro, if you go there, like it's the craziest thing. They're so close to him because they give everything. They, they won't even get married because they're giving their marriage to Jesus, kind of crazy loving people. And, and, and a well-known evangelist came up to them because he heard about their prayer lives and he heard about how vivacious their spirituality was. And he came to them and he said, hey, um, I know that I have this calling to be a great evangelist in the earth. And, and I was wondering, could you tell me, like, you're so close to the heart of God, could you tell me, like, what should I do to be a good evangelist? And this, this mother looked at him and she just said, find the love of Jesus and love him back. He's like, but in order to start my ministry, I'm gonna need like a lot of resources. Like I'm gonna need money to do this. What, how do I get the money that I need to do what God's called me to do? And she looked at him again and she just said, find the love of Jesus and love him back. He's like, but, but I need like good strategy for how to do what God's called me to do in the earth. And she just looks at him and she just says, I have to tell you this, love Jesus, love Jesus, love Jesus, love Jesus and give everything to him. No second love is enough. Only one love, only that love that's unlike anything we've ever encountered. I don't know about you, but when I hear this man, John the Baptist's life lived out, I just think, man, I wanna be like that. Like, I just wanna be for one love. Like, I just, everything else seems so banal to me. I just want one love. I want that love that I know never changes. I want that love that never fails. I want that love that is so overwhelming that I can't help but to tell everybody about it. What would happen in the city of Nashville if just one or two people cried out in the wilderness? What would happen if 55 people cried out in the wilderness? What if 200 people cried out in the wilderness? What if a whole church dedicated their lives to being prophetic in this community, in the community of Nashville? And all you can do is say, hey, everything else you're running after and everything else you're trying to associate yourself with, it's not enough. Fortune, fame, money, friends, cars, you can have it all, but give me one love, the love of Jesus that gave everything for me so that I can give everything for them. I just wanna encourage you right now just to ask in your heart, what do I need to give up? Who do I need to give up that second love for? And who can help me walk closer in my love for him? Who are the people that I can come in contact with that'll be like, hey, do you love him today? How much do you love him? Is it enough love? I wonder if we would practice this simple prayer on occasion 
which would be to listen to Jesus as he asked what he asked at the end of John 21, where he says, Peter, do you love me? What if you woke up every morning with your ear tuned and asking that question to you, do you love me from the Lord? Do you love me? I mean, he asked Peter three times. He probably needs to ask me 30. But I'm going to say, I want to. I'm going to try. I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to stop loving second love and start loving first love. Can we pray together? Just ask the Lord to help us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you teach us and you guide us into all truth. We thank you, Jesus, that you're the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by you. So Jesus, help us show everyone you so that they can come to know the love of the Father, the love that gave the Son, the love that gives endlessly to us. Let us receive the love so that we might to give it in the earth. And we just ask all of these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.